Well, today at at Rock Valley Bible Church is a special day for us. It is uh, uh, Baptism Sunday. Uh, We're going to have, I think, current count is eight people who are going to be baptized uh, this afternoon at at Lake Olson. In fact, if you are planning to be baptized, I'd just like you to stand up so we can uh, see who's going to be baptized. Paula, looking to be baptized, and Alan and Julie back there, and Adam being baptized, and I'm looking for some other guys. Where's Rachel's in the nursery? She's looking to be baptized, and Nathan Reed. Right? You can. Where are you? Oh, there you are. <laughs> okay, you may be seated. And uh, also, the Seaballs have uh, a friend of theirs um, who uh, just accepted Christ, believed in Him just a few days ago, and um, so she. It's interesting. We talked to her yesterday. She's realizing her uh, husband maybe not wanting this. She called him in the Philippines where he is. And um, she's scared of persecution. But she said, uh, I'm ready for it. It's kind of what her perspective was. So her name's Hulda. You can, you can pray for her. And in light, and also on top of uh, baptism this morning, we're also going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Uh, it's a great morning for us then to to celebrate the two ordinances of the church that God has given to us, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And so I I thought it appropriate to deviate from the Gospel of Mark that we've been working through and uh, just preach a special message on the ordinances. It's the title of my message this morning, The Ordinances, just so that when we go out to the lake and see what's happening there, we can rejoice in that. And uh, likewise, this morning, as we take of the bread and take of the cup, we can understand and celebrate that in a, in a full way. Now, you may not be familiar with the word ordinance. Uh, an ordinance often used to describe a law, say like a city ordinance or um, something like, like that, some kind of collective group where they follow, like no skateboarding on the sidewalk or no parking on Main Street or no jumping off the bridge by city ordinance 275-10B or something. Um, Basically what it is, an ordinance implies authority behind a law that's enacted by city officials or governmental authorities that everybody will will follow. It's a a command for the common good, and we obey because the authorities have made that regulation. Now when it comes to religious settings, an ordination ordinance often is used of a ceremony that a community follows. And it follows because of divine command. Just as the city officials are the ones who enact the ordinance, so also God is the one who enacts ordinances upon us and upon the things that we do. God is the the one behind that. And we're going to look at the two ordinances that God has given to the church, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And we'll look at them in that order. Baptism is a ceremony of initiation. Uh, Ephesians 4 calls it uh, one baptism, just one conversion. We're converted into the, the kingdom of God, so ministered once in a person's life soon after conversion. The Lord's Supper, on the other hand, isn't just a once kind of deal. It is a, a repeated deal, often. It's a ceremony of remembrance, and it remembers. It causes us to remember Him who died for us. And through the years, there's been great controversy over these things. Uh, there's been great controversy over the mode of baptism. Should it be sprinkling? Should it be dunking? Well, what about when there's not enough water? Uh, what about dousing people with buckets of water? Is that okay? There's been controversy over the age of those who are baptized. What about infants? Should infants be baptized? What about little children? What age should children be before they are, are baptized? What about young children? What about older? Should we wait till 18? Should we wait till five-year-old? What? What's the age of those being baptized? There's controversy over the meaning of baptism. Does it bring forgiveness of sins? Does it bring about the new birth? Or is it symbolic? What happens... Uh, I'm sorry, in the, the, the Lord's Supper also. There's questions about that as well. So it's not just baptism that those questions. And, and by the way, the reason why there's so many questions about baptism and Lord's Supper is because you're actually doing something. Um, it, it's one thing to have, say, maybe a view of God, which is maybe slightly off. Oftentimes it makes no practical difference. But with baptism and Lord's Supper, it makes a lot of practical difference. 
Right? When an infant is born, is going to be baptized? Or how often are you going to celebrate the Lord's Supper? What should we call the Lord's Supper? Lord's Supper, Lord's Table, Communion, the Mass. What happens to the, the bread and the wine? Does it transubstantiate into the, the body and blood of Jesus? Or does it consubstantiate so that the body and blood of Jesus is in, with, and under, as Luther said? Or does nothing happen? Or what about the presence of Christ? Is Christ present physically? Is He present spiritually in a special way? Or is He present in the Lord's Supper like He's present all the time? What about the, the meaning of the Lord's Supper? Does it, does it give grace? Some believe that taking of the, the host gives grace to us. Does it give grace maybe in any different way than the preaching of the Word gives grace? Or the encouragement of people? Or, or the worship of God gives grace? Or is it merely a memorial? How about the frequency? Should it be administered every day? Or every week? Or every month? Or every year? And then we step back back to the Lord's Supper. What about the number of ordinances? It, are, are there more than two ordinances? Like seven, as the Roman Catholic Church says? Or like three, as the Plymouth Brethren say? You know what one they add? The Plymouth Brethren? Anyone know? Baptism, Lord's Supper, and... Anyone say? No. Foot washing. Jesus left an example that we should follow in His steps. Plymouth Brethren says that's a third ordinance that should be taking place in the church. Now, these are the sorts of questions that uh, come about as a result of seeking how to apply these practices. And I'm under, by the way, no assumption I'm going to answer all your questions. I'm, I'm not even really aiming to answer all your questions or, or solve all the problems. I know there are some who have done that and they've become, have come with great convictions regarding um, what they believe is true about these things. In fact, they have, have had such conviction about these things that even people have died over these things. I think about the Anabaptists who lived during the time of the Reformation. They came to see in Scripture and believe that, that proper baptism is after belief. You believe in Jesus and then you're baptized. And they lived in a world in which Christianity and everybody believed that an infant should be baptized. And... Um, but they believe that someone should be baptized when they're older. And in fact, even then if they were baptized as a child, they should be rebaptized again. That's the name Anabaptist or rebaptized. And they believe that the proper mode is immersion for baptism. And uh, that caused a lot of problems for that, especially in a sense that they said that in their baptism, they declare the whole other church to be wrong. We're the ones who, who get it right. And so those in charge of the church um, saw them as heretics and they said, okay, you want to be rebaptized? We'll rebaptize you a third time. And they would often take weights and stones around them and throw them into the lake. Or they would tie them to a post and wait for the high tide to come in to rebaptize them the third time, to drown them. So they died. People, and many, many Anabaptists paid baptism with their lives. Blood has been shed over the matters of the Lord's Supper. Untold number of Lollards who lived in the 14th century died at the hands of the church because of their denial of the Mass. They denied what the Catholic Church said and were killed for it. And the Council of Trent on the other side armed itself. Session 22, Canon 1. If anyone says that in the Mass a true and real sacrifice is not offered to God, or that to be offered is nothing else but that Christ has given us to eat, which, by the way, is my view, let him be anathema. Condemned to the deepest hell. And if people are condemned to the deepest hell, then persecution comes. And men like Ridley and Latimer were burned at the stake in part because of their denial of the Mass. I'm not interested this morning in shedding blood. I'm not interested in putting forth controversy. I just want to show you from Scripture where we get what we practice this morning. So open your Bibles, if you will, to Luke chapter 3. I just want to stay right here in Luke. I, I figure that we can pull enough from Luke to talk about baptism. We can pull enough here to talk about uh, the Lord's Supper. And we're going to look primarily Luke chapter 3 at the baptism of John because John's baptism really was a prototype 
of the baptism of the early church. When Jesus told His disciples to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe whatever I have commanded you, lo, I am with you always. When Jesus gave that command to the church to go out and baptize, I do believe that they understood what it is that John was doing as baptism. And that is what they did. In fact, in several places in the book of John, John's baptism is placed right alongside the baptism of the disciples. Like John was baptizing, the disciples were baptizing, and presumably they're both doing the same thing. Listen, John 3.22, After these things, Jesus and His disciples came into the land of Judea, and He was spending time with them and baptizing. John also was baptizing in Anon, near Salim. So, Jesus was baptizing, John's disciples were baptizing. And in fact, even Jesus was baptizing and making more disciples than John at some point in their ministry. First it was John. He said, my ministry must decrease, Jesus must increase. John 4, the next chapter. Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John. Parentheses, John 4, 2. Although Jesus Himself was not baptizing, but His disciples were. John and Jesus' disciples we're doing exactly the same thing. So I think in this way, John's baptism becomes a prototype of the early church baptism. When the early church began to baptize people in the name of Christ, rather than just merely for repentance, it is for repentance, it is for forgiveness of sins, but it's not, it's not merely just to plead to God. It is in the name of Jesus Christ, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I believe the same elements were there that were in the, the baptism of John. So let's look at John's baptism. Luke chapter 3. Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Herod the Tetrarch of Galilee and his brother Philip, the Tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis and Lysanias was Tetrarch of Abilene and the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the Word of God came to the son of Zech- John, the son of Zacharias in the wilderness. And he came into all the district around the Jordan preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. We see here in verses 1 and 2 a reference to time. Not like we do in our age. In our age when we reference time, we reference the year 2012. Um, or we say that happened in 1950 in the uh, times of the Bible. They, they referenced by their leaders. We see Tiberius Caesar mentioned. We see Pilate and Herod mentioned. Tiberius, ruler of the whole Roman Empire. Uh, Pilate, ruler of Judea in the south, Herod, ruler in the north, along with a couple of tetrarchs it mentions. And verse 2 mentions the name of the high priest. It says, the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. Annas was the high priest from 6 AD to 15 AD. And then his priesthood went over to his son Eleazar, took it for two years. And then his son-in-law, Caiaphas, took it for 20 years, from 18 AD to 37 AD, right about the time of, of John and through the time of Jesus of Nazareth. Annas is mentioned here because he still held much power. So it was during the priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas when this happened. Luke mentions the 15 year of Tiberius Caesar. Puts it something like 28-29 A.D. Just preparing for the ministry of Jesus. Now, during these days, John the Baptist uh, arrives on the scene. He spent his days along the Jordan River, as it says, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. We can read in other Gospels where His message is this, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Right? Turn from your sins because the kingdom is near. It's because John was the forerunner. As we even see here in verse 4, this is written in the book of Isaiah, the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make His path straight. Every ravine will be filled and every mountain and hill will be brought low. The crooked will become straight and the rough road smooth and all flesh will see the salvation of God. This is John the Baptist preparing the way for Jesus, preaching this baptism of repentance. Now John, it says here, is down by the river around the Jordan. The Jordan flows from the Sea of Galilee in the north down to the Dead Sea in the south. And uh, along that river is uh, uh, where John was. And there's a reason why he was down there by the river because to baptize you need lots of water. In fact, even the word baptism, that's what it means. It means immersion. It means to be dunked. 
Ships have been sunk are described as being baptized. Animals that have drowned are referred to as being baptized. After a flood comes through and some debris is found on the top of the waters, it says that debris has not been baptized because it's just wet and floating. It's when it's been below water that it is baptized. That's why you need lots of water. You need to be immersed. In fact, John's Gospel even says he was baptizing in a neon near Salim because there was much water there. You need a lot of water to be baptized. Um, even when uh, Ethiopian eunuch was going down the road to Gaza. It's a desert road. But he said, oh, look, there's water. What prevents me from being baptized? Right? He saw some kind of pool or some kind of pond. that He, could, it's not, he didn't have enough water in his canisters. It was there. And John's baptism here is described as a baptism of repentance. In other words, John was baptizing people who had repented of their sins. That's why they were baptized. It's a baptism of repentance. It's a baptism that comes after repentance. Matthew's Gospel describes the baptism of John like this. They're being baptized in him, by Him in the Jordan River as they confess their sins. That's what repentance is. Repentance is confessing your sins. Repentance is turning from your sins. And as people were doing that, John was baptizing them and thereby symbolizing their forgiveness of sins. Symbolizing their cleansing from the water. That's what John's baptism was. It was a baptism of repentance. And it says, look here, it says, for the forgiveness of your sins. For the forgiveness of sins. Now, that can be confusing sometimes. It, it, people can say, oh, you baptize for forgiveness. Um, I would say that's not the case. Uh, you can look even in Matthew's Gospel. It says, I baptize for repentance, is what he says. I, I baptize for repentance. Repentance happens, and that's when I baptize. And so likewise here, Forgiveness of sins happens, and that's why I baptize. And how does forgiveness of sins happen? Because of repentance and confessing sins. And so it's not that baptism gives forgiveness, it's the baptism symbolizes forgiveness, right? I mean, you think about it, you're surrounded by water all around, and then you're dunked completely under the water. It's just symbolizing you come up out of the water, and you come and you're drenched, soaking wet. It just symbolizes a complete forgiveness of sins. Like the Gospel, right? Colossians 2 I forget what verse 13 maybe. He has forgiven us all of our transgressions. He's washed us thoroughly, totally. That's what baptism symbolizes. That's what John was doing. By the way, that's what the early church did as well. You see the same elements always present. Repentance and forgiveness and immersion. They're always present. When people repented of their sin, came to faith in Christ, they're immersed in water. Not to gain forgiveness, but it's a sign of their forgiveness. And time after time, you see the same thing happen. People come to faith, they express it in their baptism. They come to faith and they're baptized soon afterwards. The book of Acts, the day of Pentecost, Peter preaches about Jesus. They believe in Him who they killed. Their, their heart was cut to the quick, it says. They said, Peter, what should we do? He says, repent and let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Right? Repent and, and be forgiven and know that and then be baptized. And 3,000 people were baptized that day, Acts 2.41. Or the Ethiopian eunuch, Philip, came up to him and talked to him and, and he was reading the Scriptures in Isaiah 53 and, and the Ethiopian eunuch said, I don't understand this. Is this talking about, about Isaiah? Is it talking about someone else? Who's it talking about? And Philip preached Jesus to him. And then as he went along, he said, oh, I see water. What prevents me from being baptized? He says, if you believe and trust in Christ, you can be baptized. And he did. He believed and then was baptized. Or Paul, when he was blinded on the road to Damascus, spent several days... Praying, and he repented of his former life. His, his life is, is clear of that. And as soon as um, Ananias came down to see him, he baptized Paul. You can read about that in Acts chapter 9. And that's what we're going to celebrate at Olson Lake here this afternoon. Those are baptized, going to give testimony about how God has saved them, how they've come to faith in Christ. They'll speak of their sin and the, their sinful ways and the way they used to live. They will speak about how Jesus has come into their life, how God has saved them from their sins. And they'll speak about the fruit that they have seen as a result of their life. That's exactly what was taking place here in John as they were confessing their sins, as they were repenting. John's baptism is a precursor to the baptism today. John was the forerunner, smoothing the way for Jesus to come. And as people repented of their sin, they repented and embraced Christ the Messiah, but not everybody was prepared. 
Not all were being baptized by John. Look at verse 7. And he began saying to the crowds who were going out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear bear fruits in keeping with repentance. It's not a particularly soft or easy message that he's preaching. I see the words sin. I see the words wrath. I see the words repentance coming here. It's because there were people going out to be baptized by John who weren't repentant, who walked in their sins, and were still under the wrath of God. And John would have nothing about baptizing these people. If baptism was for the forgiveness of sins, boy, then you'd baptize everybody because you just go out to a lake and you get people wet and forgiveness of sins comes. What a wonderful thing! That's not how it is. People are forgiven. They repent first. And then the, the baptism merely symbolizes that. Merely shows it. But think about this. There were unrepentant people going out to be baptized by John thinking as if their baptism was going to gain them something. And likely so. Crowds and crowds of people were coming to John to be baptized by him. In fact, Matthew wrote, Jerusalem was going out to him. Jerusalem, the city. That's like saying Rockford was going out to the Rock River to be baptized by him. Like the whole city was. And then he says, Matthew does, and all Judea and all the district around the Jordan. Judea's in the south. Like everybody there in the country land, we're going out to the river to be baptized by John. It's no wonder then that lots of people were kind of carried along with the crowds. It's very easy to get caught up in the crowds in, um, when everybody's doing it. You can kind of go and do it as well and kind of be sucked in. Go with the flow. Right? To, to stand out means you've got to uh, just to step aside and not be involved with that makes a big statement. But it's easy to go with the flow. And John was saying, no, this isn't about going with the flow. This isn't about some religious hocus-pocus. No, this is about being repentant truly and not going along with the crowd. But, but going and repenting of your sin. And John knew that not everyone was really repentant. And thus the warnings to the people. And John didn't baptize them. And it appears where some were trusting in their heritage. It says, And do not say to yourselves, verse 8, We have Abraham for our father. See, apparently there were, there were some who were trusting and relying upon their religious heritage. They're thinking like, um, you know what, I, I go to church my whole life. My parents are Christian. In fact, I'm a descendant of Abraham. I mean, look at how good I am. And, and John pointed out, rightly, that they were trusting in their lineage. They were trusting in their religiosity. In fact, when you translate this, when you go back to Matthew's Gospel, you see that it was primarily the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious leaders, who John was really addressing and speaking against. These people who had it all together. who said, we're Jews. We're Abraham's descendants. We're, we're God's children. We are fine. And everyone's doing this, so let's join and do this as well. And John says, no. Don't trust your religious heritage. And so that's why baptism is so good because it's an opportunity for each individual to say, I'm not trusting in my individual heritage. I'm not trusting the faith of my parents. I'm not here because I'm good. Rather, I'm here being baptized because I'm a sinner and I've confessed my sins and found faith in Christ and He has forgiven me of my sins and now I'm walking in in a way that would please Him and I'm being baptized because He says to be baptized how good it is for each individual to come to a point in their life when they say, it's not about the crowd. This is about me and God and me coming and identifying with Him. And, Abraham, and um, John said this, Don't say, I've got Abraham and Father, for I say to you that from these stones God is able to raise up children to Abraham. Just out there in the wilderness. He's outside. That's why it's so good for us to be outside in this baptism. Um, I'm very thankful we don't have a baptismal Going outside is much better. It's the preferred way in my standpoint. It's not to say baptismal fonts are not, not fine. But this is so good, right? Look at these rocks. And God can raise up stones to be children of Abraham. And indeed, and here's the warning, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. So every tree that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. 
And there's this message. It's a prophetic message to Israel. It's going out. You guys have all this heritage that's fine and good, but you need to bring forth fruit and repentance. And, and there is this, this guy with an axe. And he's you know, kind of lumbering up and he's loosening up and he is ready to chop down that tree. And he looks at the tree and he says, well, is there fruit there? No, no fruit. This tree's coming down and knocks it down. And he goes to the next tree and says, a fruit, yep, a fruit here. I'm going to skip that one. Fruit here? <laughs> no fruit there. I'm going to chop this tree down. It has something to do with what God did with Israel when they rejected Him. He said, you reject me? I'm going to the Gentiles. And, and that's what happened. And the Gospel has come to the Gentiles. Praise the Lord. That's why most of us are Gentiles. Because the Jews have rejected it. God still has a plan for them. He, Romans chapter 11, that's a, the oak tree that He's going to grow up again. But He cut a lot of them down because they were trusting in their religious heritage. And so I just encourage all of us, let's repent. Let's be repenters. Martin Luther said, all of life is one of repentance. And repentance gets flushed out here. Verses 10 through 14. These people come with questions they had for John. And the crowds were questioning him, saying, Then what shall we do? If we're a brood of vipers and you, you warn us to flee from the wrath to come, what shall we do? And John shows fruit of repentance. Here's what fruit of repentance looks like. He would answer and say to them. So this is like he would answer. I mean, this, this is a, like a common answer that he was giving. He's probably giving lots of them. Lots of application. The man who has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And he who has food is to do likewise. And some tax collectors also came to be baptized. They said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than what you have been ordered to do. Some soldiers were questioning him, saying, What about us? What shall we do? And he said to them, Do not take money from anyone by force or accuse anyone falsely and be content with your wages. That's what repentance is. Sharing your resources with those in need. Verse 11. Operating a business fairly. Not extorting people. Not intimidating people. Not forcing them with more. The tax gatherers. Using your authority appropriately. Verse 14. Don't take money from by, by force. Don't accuse anyone falsely. But do a, a right job. Do a fair job. You're police officers. Uphold justice. That's what you need to do. And be content with your wages. Don't, don't take a bribe. Don't, don't be accepting. Don't be complaining. Just do your job. That's what repentance is. The implication is, is that people were hoarding and were not sharing because they needed to turn to do those things. The implication is that people weren't operating a fair business and they needed to operate a, a fair business. And the implication was that the police officers were inappropriately exercising their authority and extorting money from people and wanted more. There's a greedy. And, and John was saying, no, you turn from that. You, you turn and be a, a righteous policeman. You turn and be a righteous tax collector. You turn and be one who shares your resources, what you have. Those are appropriate fruits of repentance. And those who bore such fruit and would confess their sins and pledge those things, John baptized them. And those who didn't, who said, no, 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 I'm, I'm righteous in myself, John refused to baptize them. And I say that because of this interesting passage in Luke chapter 7. So turn over there. So we finish up this point about baptism before we move to the Lord's Supper. In Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 24, Jesus is talking about John the Baptist. Messengers of John had left and they began to speak to, he began to speak to the crowds about John. Here's what he says about John, this wild man in the wilderness. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? <laughs> you see this floppy thing? But what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? That wasn't John. John was a strong man. He was a man that wasn't shaken. He wasn't in soft clothing. Those who are splendidly clothed and live in luxury are found in royal palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet. That's who John the Baptist was. A rough kind of guy. A Martin Luther kind of guy. Uh, a take it and say, this is where I am. That's who John the Baptist was. Yes, I say to you, one who's even more than a prophet. He's not just a prophet like Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel or Daniel or Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. It wasn't like that. This is the one about whom it was written in Malachi chapter 3. Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. Jesus is the, uh, John the Baptist is the prophet of all prophets. 
He's the one that stood above to prepare the way for Messiah. And I say to you, among those born of women, there's no one greater than John. Yet he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Okay, we don't have time really to look at that, but what that, that says is that John the Baptist is the greatest of men, but how much greater to be in the kingdom of Christ than even the greatest of the Old Testament dispensation. And they heard that. Verse 29, this is where I want to get. When all the people heard, that when all the people and the tax collectors heard this, they acknowledged God's justice having been baptized with the baptism of John. They loved this about John is such a great man. Yes, he's our hero. We, we received his baptism. Unlike the Pharisees and Sadducees, verse 30, the Pharisees and the lawyers, right, the expert in the law, they rejected God's purpose for themselves not having been baptized by John. There were these religious people who were not baptized by John because they trust in their religiosity. And how many people are wrongly baptized trusting in their religiosity rather than going the low way of repentance and faith? Well, it's the baptism of John. Those were sinners, knew they were sinners, repented, were baptized. Those who were righteous in their own eyes, didn't need John's baptism, didn't need repentance, already good enough. They didn't identify with the forerunner and they missed their Messiah. And let me just apply it then to all of us here. All of you have a need to be baptized. You have a need to put your stake in the sand and say, I am a follower of Christ. I have trusted in Him. I have found forgiveness in Him. I believe in Him. And I'm going to follow Him by God's grace till my dying day. So I've talked with baptism about several of the people who are going to be baptized today. I said, you know, it's a little bit like marriage. In marriage, a man and a woman stand up front, up close together and say something to the effect of, I take you to be my wife, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, in for better, for worse. Okay. Uh, Amy and Adam, I'll get that before we, we do your wedding, okay? Just, just checking. Um, but that was said. Here it says, I, I'm giving you my love regardless of the circumstances because I found in you everything I want you're going to be the object of my affection and my love. And that is what baptism is. It says that, you know what, I've found Jesus. And He has blessed me by grace with His forgiveness. And I've found that there's no better path in life. And He's the one I'm pledging to the world that this is what I'm going to follow for better, for worse, in sickness and health, the richer, for poorer. In fact, um, I remember speaking with uh, Holda, who... Uh, worked the midnight shift. She's not here today. But uh, I said, it may just be that your problems in life, which have drawn her very low, she has nothing else to go by. I said, very may, well may be that you've got difficulties in your life and following Jesus makes your problems greater. Facing back home, a totally Catholic environment, facing persecution from her family. And I said, are you ready to follow Jesus even if things get worse? Are you, are you trying to follow Jesus just because you think things are going to be better? And, and here's the truth of the things, is that, that coming to Christ may make things worse, but coming to Christ then shows that God is going to give us grace to help us overcome through the difficulties that mount in our lives. Psalm 91, what uh, Phil read for us today. In the shadow of your wings I will seek refuge. He's going to be the one to deliver us and help us from our troubles. And so He is totally worth it to follow. But it's not that you follow Him and everything's going to be better. You follow Him, things are going to be worse, but He's going to give you the grace to get over it. Does that make sense? That's what following Christ is all about. That's what baptism is all about. Matthew 28 said to the disciples, go and make to all the nations and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is what the church is called to do is to see people converted, to see them be baptized, to see them then become disciples, learners of Jesus, who learn His ways and who follow in His steps all the, the days of their life. And if you've not been baptized, there's, there's still time today. Come and talk to me. Say, so, you know, I really hadn't realized I need to be baptized. Well, it's 3 o'clock today at Olson Lake. You might just be baptized. Okay? I encourage you to do that. You can talk to me. Think about a testimony. What was I like before I was a Christian? How did Christ come into my life? What have I been like since then? And um, we'll get you baptized this week.
All right, there's baptism, one ordinance. And now the Lord's Supper, which we're going to celebrate here in a few minutes, moments at the end of our, of our message. Um, turn to Luke chapter 22. Here's Luke's account of when the Lord's Supper was inaugurated. It's the last meal that Jesus would have upon the earth. Jesus knew that this was His last meal. Several times in this text, He's going to say, I'm not going to eat of this again until it's fulfilled in the Kingdom of God. I'm not going to eat of this again until the Kingdom of God comes. It was a, a Passover meal. That's what it was. And this was, though it was His last meal on earth, he was greatly anticipating this meal. He says in verse 15, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover. Let's look at the full account. Verse 14 through 23. And when the hour had come, He reclined at the table and the apostles with Him. And He said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall never again eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And we had taken a cup and given thanks. He said, take this and share it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. And we had taken some bread and given thanks. He broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, He took the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup is poured out for you in the new covenant in my blood. And then I just finished the narrative. But behold, the hand of one betraying me is with mine on the table. For indeed, the Son of Man is going as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to discuss among themselves which one of them it might be who is going to do this. So not all was happiness and bliss there at the Last Supper. Jesus knew that there were good things there. He knew that it was bad things there with Judas going to betray Him. But it was no accident that this was His last meal. Jesus knew He was going to die. And the Gospel of, of Luke is just like the Gospel of Mark. Time and time again, He says, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and raised up on the third day. Luke repeats it again and again, just like Mark does, just like Matthew does. Going up to Jerusalem. In fact, a big turning point in the book comes in Luke chapter 9, verse 51. When Luke writes, It came about when the days were approaching for His ascension, He resolutely set His face to go to Jerusalem. He said, that's where i got to go. That's where I'm going to die. Let's be on with it. Jesus knew a time of death was upon Him. He knew of the great pains I'm sorry, Jesus, He knew the great pains that was going to take place there. He knew His death that was going to happen. He knew it was a suffering death. He knew exactly how He was going to die. He'd seen other crucifixions. He knew that was what was prophesied of Him. And Jesus then, when He had this meal, took great pains to make sure that it was all set just exactly as He wanted to. It says in verse 14, when the hour had come, it's not the hour of His death, but it's the hour of His last time. It is the last time coming in the hour had come. He was going to talk with His disciples. And, and you can see how carefully He prepared for this time. Verse 7, back in, Matthew, in Luke chapter 22. Then came the first day of unleavened bread in which the Passover lamb had been sacrificed. And Jesus said to Jesus and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us so that we may eat it. They'd taken the lamb on, I can't remember, I think it's on Sunday. They've had it for four days. Here it is, I think Thursday night. They... They kill the lamb and then they prepare to eat it. Go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. And they said to him, where do you want us to prepare it? Verse 10, And when you have entered the city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house that he enters. And you shall say to the owner of that house, The teacher says to you, Where's the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he'll show you a large furnished upper room. Prepare it there. And they left and found everything just as He'd told them and they prepared the Passover. Peter and John, you go ahead and you prepare this meal for us. And He told them specific directions. I believe that beforehand, Jesus had arranged everything with this man. He said, okay, why don't you be out here? I'm going to send my disciples at this time so they're going to be there. And so I don't think this was an incredible act of prophecy. I think it was because He'd set it all up. A little bit like engaged couples. You know, when I give you the wink to the waiter, why don't you come out and bring that special, special cake? 
And that's what Jesus had done. He said, go to Jerusalem. You're going to find a man carrying a pitcher of water. Speak to him. He's going to show you the room and go and prepare the meal there because I've talked to him beforehand. And so it's Peter and John who are off and uh, preparing this meal. And um, think about what they're preparing. Here, guys, okay? Preparing a meal for 13 men. The 12 disciples plus Jesus. Now, you ladies know what this is about. You cook for 13 sometimes. And I appreciate that. But guys, maybe you don't know what that's about. It's a lot of work. Right, ladies? It's a lot of work to prepare for 13 men. But they would have made sure that they had all the agreements exactly according to Exodus chapter 12, which were the Passover originated. A lamb, unleavened bread, bitter herbs. A lamb for the sacrifice, the unleavened bread, because the people left in haste. They didn't have time for the bread to rise. And bitter herbs, because their time in Egypt was a difficult time. And we know that they prepared drinks for the meal because Jesus during the meal drank from the, the fruit of the vine, right? the wine, which is a common drink of the day. On top of the biblical requirements, they probably had other things like the Jews do today. Maybe they had the carpus, the green vegetables. Maybe they had the haroset, the sweet mixture of apples, nuts, and cinnamon. Um, we don't have time today, but to, we will sometime. Maybe we'll have another Seder meal here at Rock Valley Bible Church like we've done before that, that just speaks of the the treasures of the symbolism that Jews today even celebrate because they celebrate the Passover. So much of it points to Jesus. We don't know how much that the Jews celebrate today was actually going on back then, but today it so clearly speaks of Jesus. In fact, whenever we do a Seder meal, I like to, to pull up. It's called a Haggadah. Nagad, to teach or to tell. Haggadah is a, it's a telling of the story. I like to pull one from a non-believing Jew. And we just see Jesus all over that thing. And uh, it's really... Amazing to see. But we don't know how much was there, but certainly it was, it was pretty close. We know at least those three things. The lamb, the unleavened bread, and the bitter herbs were there. Um, Jesus had certainly eaten this meal before. This time he's about 33 years of age. He's probably had this meal 32 times in his life. It's a very common meal that the Jews often had. He probably had it several times with his disciples. Having been with them for three years, this may have been the third Passover with them, may have been the fourth Passover with them. We don't exactly know. Passover was the biggest Jewish holiday of the year, but there's something special about this particular Passover which Jesus anticipated with great delight. He says, verse 15, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Earnestly desired. Now, in Hebrew, the way that you make an emphasis, we use the word very. I'm very, 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 very excited to eat this meal. But in Hebrew, they they say, like, for instance, Genesis 3.16, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely. Literally, it's from any tree of the garden. Eating you may eat. Right? You just have an abundance. Or, when the day you eat from it, you shall surely die. In the day you eat from it, dying you will die. And so likewise here, I've earnestly desired, with desire, I have desired to eat this meal. In other words, we might say it like this. He greatly, 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 help me kids. He greatly, greatly, come on kids, greatly, 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 come on hands, Debbie. Greatly, 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 greatly desired to eat this meal. It's kind of strange as last. Why would he greatly desire this? Well, Albert Barnes, the commentator, gives some reasons. First of all, he loved the Passover holiday. He loved the holiday. It's like the Sabbath instituted by God to be a blessing for His people, established to help Israel remember God's great work of redemption and redeeming a people out of Israel from the tyranny of the Egyptians. The entire nation would reflect upon the goodness of God and the greatness of God. He was great in the plagues. He was good to keep His people free, set His people free. It's a time of great fellowship with others. It's like the, the greatest holiday that that you might have or enjoy. Some of you enjoy Christmas greatly. I mean, just this past week, we had 4th of July, right? The Independence Day, right? Think about how ironic this is, that it's the day which we celebrate getting out of the tyranny of England's taxes on us. I'll just put that there for you. But that is what 4th of July is. The day off, everybody. Fireworks at the end of the day. It's a good way to end the day. Um, our family received a call. The uh, let's see, when was Wednesday? Is that Fourth of July? We received a call Thursday, Tuesday night. 
from a friend, maybe Tuesday afternoon, I forget when it was, but from my sister and brother-in-law who owned some ski doos And we're like, they said, you want to go to the river? We're like, <laughs> oh, okay. Okay, and so we went out to the river and um, we spent the day. That's why if you see I'm, I'm red today, um, you should see my shoulders. They're, they're cherries and they've been really hurting. They're starting to heal before we go to the beach today. But it was a wonderful time at the lake, just a time off. And this is what the Passover was. In fact, Jews at that time even took a week off from the beginning when they took the lamb in and had a whole, is a festive. And I think that's why Jesus desired to eat this Passover. It's because he loved the holiday. But, but secondly, he loved the disciples. And this is the last time he'd celebrate this holiday with them. Celebrate before the last time. After this meal, they would depart. It's a little bit like a graduation of some type. You've been with people in school for a long time, and now finally you come to the graduation day. What's going to happen after graduation day? You're all going to scatter. You're never going to be all together again. It's never going to be the same again. Tears sometimes come, depending upon the closeness of the group. Um, my, my nephew... I uh, just graduated from a place called uh, Jackson Hole Bible College where Chris is going to spend this next year. How many were there? Mom and Dad, how many were there? How many were there? How many kids? 25, 25 kids. Spent a whole year together just really uh, really focusing on Bible study, discipleship program in a church. They were there. They took uh, different trips to different places. They backpacked together. They just lived in community for a year and all of a sudden then they graduated and they'll never see each other again. Some may. In fact, I caught wind that uh, my nephew has reason to see some of those people again. So, uh, specific her. But, but it will all be gone and, and it, will, it will never be the same again. And Jesus knows it will never be the same again. And as they go, I need to prepare them. Because not only was he going to suffer death, the disciples at all also were going to suffer death as well. Tradition has it that all the apostles suffered martyrdom for faith in Christ, save John and Judas who killed himself. And um, during and after the Passover, Jesus warns his disciples, Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat. I've prayed for you, your strength wouldn't fail. Once you've turned again, so you can go strengthen the brother. He just said, you're going to have a difficult time. I'm just warning you. Not only is my time difficult, your time is going to be difficult. And he even he said to his sleepy disciples, pray that you may not enter temptation. Right? The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Right? Your flesh is weak. You're going to deny me. All of you are going to be scattered. No, no, I'm not going to. Yes, Peter, before the cock crows three times, you're going to deny me. So he had a chance at this Passover meal to really help tell them and, and prepare them for the suffering that was coming upon them. Jesus loved the holiday. He loved the disciples. Finally, he loved the church. And, and, and I think this is probably his biggest thing. I mean, I, I love it when I'm able to preach something and I've got some new insight told with a great story and a great illustration. It all comes down. It's going to be new. and fr- I love that feeling. Well, Jesus had like the greatest illustration ever and the greatest punch and the greatest change, I think, ever that, that took place. Because at this Passover meal, He's going to institute an ordinance which would be forever for edification of Christians who would ever live. Because for followers of Christ... This event is no longer known as the Passover, but it may now be known as the Lord's Supper. Jesus told to do in remembrance of Him. Celebration of the Passover was to remind the Jewish people of their exodus out of Egypt. God gave the Passover with specific things to remember of, of how the angel of death came through and the blood on the lintels of the doorpost skipped over our generations, skipped over our ancestors. And, and, and God provided it and let people escape out of there. He provided freedom. By the way, that freedom was only temporary. Soon again they were slaves. Northern Israel was destroyed by the Syrians. The Southern Judah was taken off in exile to Babylon. It came back and now it's difficult. They were... Right here, when Jesus was there, very much in slavery in some regards, under the bondage of the Roman Empire. It's not, they had been saved, yes, remembering that, but a lot of it has to do with, yes, remember that because of what God can do and what He will do in the future. And Jesus says, well, I'm the one to whom all that's pointing. And Jesus changed the point of the Passover and said, I'm the Passover. You may not be delivered now. Remember how they were delivered back then? Well, in me, you can be delivered forever. 
And look at how He transformed the Passover in verse 19. And when He had taken some bread and given thanks, He broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is My body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. And we hear those words so often we don't hear anything different. It's like, okay, yeah, of course. I mean, you do this in remembrance of Me. But you've got to hear it in context of how the apostles heard it. Do this in remembrance of Me. What had they done for 15 years, 100 years prior? Eat this bread in remembrance of Moses. But now I want you to do this in remembrance of Me. And I think their jaws dropped and they went, That's not how the words go. I mean, even the Haggadahs today that they have, they, they have, Jews have this whole ritual in telling, and they, and they memorize all these things, and they say through all these things. So Jews can go from house to house, and they're saying the same sort of thing. And I think that at some point, after 1,500 years, the Jews had some kind of uh, customary ritual. We don't know exactly what words they said. But never did anyone say, do this in remembrance of me. It's transferring the holiday to believe to be focused upon Himself away from God's redemption of Israel to the redemption that's going to provide Him. And I think their ears would have perked up because it always pointed to Exodus and Moses. But now it pointed to Jesus. Here's how it would have, would have heard. John 3.16. You know that verse, right, kids? I hope you know that verse. I hope adults, you know that verse. Imagine if I quoted the verse this way. For God so loved the world that He sent Me. So that whoever believes in Me will not perish, but have everlasting life. Alright? Now, if I was serious about that, you should be picking up stones right now and saying, No, that's not true! You're a false prophet! Or at least tomatoes or something, right? Coming up here and splattering me. That's not, that's not it. But see, you hear it. He says, God so loved the world He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish. Not... Steve Brandon, he didn't, he didn't send me, but that's what Jesus was doing at the Passover. He says, do this in remembrance of me. And they would have heard, do it in remembrance of Moses. And they're like, no, what? And, and Jesus had every right and authority to do that, so it was proper for him not to be stoned by those people. But they would have said, is that right? Is that? And they would have struggled, and that would have just been mind-blowing. But of course, Jesus was changing this ordinance that had been given to Israel now to do it. He's changing the Passover forever. And praise the Lord, He's changing the Passover forever. In fact, so much so is this the case that even Paul said that Jesus Christ is our Passover. Praise the Lord, He changed this holiday. It's been great edification for the church down through the years. How quickly we can forget Jesus, right? We get involved in ourselves and other things, but think about what we remember in the life of Jesus. Remember that Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith. Remember that Jesus is the one to judge the world in righteousness. That Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. That He is the image of the invisible God. That He is the head of the church. That He is the preeminent one who has first place in everything. That is who Jesus is. In fact, I think about if anyone could have written a, a fictional account of a story. You know, fiction sometimes. I know my father-in-law, whenever there's some kind of movie that's being watched, he's like... That's like so far-fetched. That, that would, like, would never happen. And so he doesn't like movies. Like, when all these coincidences of all these things happen together, like how movies work. Well, in some sense, it could be argued that this is like all these coincidences that all work. Of course, it's sovereign design over all things. Think about this. As the Passover was initiated on the evening before the redemption of Israel, so the Lord's Supper was initiated on the evening before the redemption of God's people from their sins. It was necessary for the blood of the Passover lamb to be shed. So also it was necessary for the blood of the Son of God to be shed for our sins. The Passover lamb was unblemished and spotless, so Jesus Christ was sinless and undefiled. The blood was sprinkled on the doorpost for protection, so the blood of Jesus is, is our precious blood that protects us. The angel of death was, was upon those who were without the blood, and so the wrath of God is upon anybody a part of the work of Christ. Christ is our Passover, perfectly aligned. And no longer is the Passover to be done in remembrance of God's redemptive work in Israel. Jesus changed the history, the course of history. From now on, it should be done in remembrance of me. Changing everything. It's a, it's a new ballgame. Now, it's not to say we can't have a Seder meal. It's not, 
To say we can't reflect and remember upon God's exodus from Israel, that's fine, okay? But if that's all we did, we'd be missing everything. It's all about celebration of the redemption that's in Jesus. So let's turn now and focus our hearts upon actually celebrating the supper. Go to 1 Corinthians 11. 1 Corinthians 11. We go here often. Luke records much the same thing that Paul records for us. Taking bread, giving his disciples eating, taking the cup, blessing it, giving everyone to drink. But in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul gives more than just the account of what took place. He also gives an interpretation of the practice today. After saying, right, verse 24, 25, about the body and the bread, do this in remembrance of me, the cup, do this in remembrance of me, then he comes in verse 26 to interpret that event. He says, often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. In other words, as we share this meal, we make a proclamation. And our proclamation is that we are proclaiming the death of Jesus. And celebrating this, it's the death of Jesus we proclaim. And by eating, we're proclaiming our faith in the atonement and anticipating the coming of Jesus, both in the past we came and is coming in the future. And with this proclamation, there's a responsibility that we proclaim it rightly. Verse 27, 28, 29. Therefore, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. Pretty heavy words there. You need to eat worthily. But a man must examine himself. In so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself and not judge the body rightly. I mean, he's, he's talking here about pretty serious circumstances because this isn't to be taken lightly. And this, is, this is like baptism. Baptism isn't to be taken lightly. Like, oh, I just get, get, get wet. Like I remember when... Um, uh, I think it was Carissa was baptized. Um, she was baptized in a church building. And I think it was Stephanie who got really excited and said, I want to take a bath in church too. But it's so flippant, right? And so likewise, the, the Lord's Supper isn't to be just, oh, let's just take it, right? It's to be taken seriously. We need to examine ourselves. We need to look at ourselves or we bring judgment upon ourselves. That's what Jesus says. So here are ways to take it in an unworthy manner. One is if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ. If you don't believe in Jesus, then you should not participate in the Lord's Supper because that's an unworthy manner. What, what, what part do you have with us in the body of Christ if you're not a believer in Jesus? Because participating, this is what it means to participate. It means I am of Jesus Christ and I have believed in Him and trusted in Him and He is my only hope and I'm rejoicing now in the bread, in the cup, because that symbolizes body, His blood, which is shed for me, and I'm doing this because He told me to, and I'm doing this to remember and reflect upon the cross. And if you're not believing in Jesus, what you're doing is not what we're doing and is not what the Last Supper, the Lord's Supper, is all about. Eating this meal doesn't save us. Eating this meal is an expression that we are saved. So if you're not a believer in Jesus, let it go. Or maybe there's some unrepentant sin that you have. I think that's an unworthy manner as well. Particularly here, it's unlove towards the brethren. And eating and getting drunk before the, the Lord's Supper was taking place. Not being caring and helpful. But there could be un... And they're not repentant of that. That's just how they were. But there, there could be some unrepentant sin in your life. Now the good news of the Gospel is that Christ has forgiven us all our sin. But there could be some sin that you're holding on to. There's a difference between a sin that you hold on to and you want, you're not ready to get rid of, and a sin that you're struggling with and desperately want to get rid of. As we learned last week, right? Lord, help my unbelief. I believe. Help my unbelief. Help rid me. I'm, I'm repenting. I'm turning from this. I'm trusting you. And it may just be that one of the sins you're not repented of is being baptized. It's clear that you should be baptized. And I just encourage you to confess your sin. Right. And just here even today, if, if your heart's not right before the Lord, I just encourage you. I cry out to God and say, God, make my heart right. I'm, I'm yours. I believe and trust in you. Right? So turn from your sin. If you don't do that, just let the bread and cup pass. It should be fine. Paul says, verse 28, let a man examine himself and then eat of the bread. So let's examine ourselves and let's look to our forgiveness in Christ 
says, as often as we eat this bread, and we eat it about every four to six weeks, verse 26, as often as you eat it, and the idea here is that it was often, as often as you do this, you're proclaiming the death of Jesus. So examine yourself now and let's participate in this glorious supper. Let's pray. Father, I, I think as we will once again come and celebrate the supper that You have ordained for us, to eat of, that You have commanded us to eat of. I pray we would find this a delight to our souls. God, this is something special. As much as it is a a remembrance, it is a time we gather as a church together to proclaim our unity, to proclaim our trust in You. And and be with us, O Lord. And be with us at 3 o'clock when we celebrate our baptisms. I think as we will publicly proclaim our faith in Christ, there are people there who came to swim, not to hear about Jesus. And I pray that there would be some itching ears who would want to come and hear about Jesus and that you would grant faith and grant repentance. Father, this is all you and your work. Help us to now even focus and think upon and reflect upon the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen.